This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. Let's pray. Lord God, as, as we gather in person online to, to worship, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in moving us in dramatic and deep ways. Touch us deep to the core with your grace and with your truth and refresh and renew us. Pray this in the powerful and saving name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to write an autobiography, what would be some of the experiences and events that you would include? For me, I'm sure I'd talk about the glory days of high school sports and the college coaching career and, and things like that. I'm sure I would mention that, you know, I, I left El Paso to come up to this faraway state called Wisconsin to go to college and study to be a pastor and, and then go on to the seminary in Mequon and, and be a pastor and everything. I, I'm sure I would talk about the, the day I met Jackie and, and then our relationship and how that blossomed and how we got married and, and how we had a family and all those things and, and how I was able to become a, a pastor. I'd probably leave out some things though. I'd, I'd probably leave out uh, those feelings of emptiness that I had when I would come home from grade school to uh, uh, an empty house because my parents both worked. I'd probably leave out all those uh, rebellious years in high school, the confusion in college. I'm pretty sure I, I wouldn't include the, those days I was bored to death in seminary Hebrew class. Leave out the, the times that, that I got so busy doing God's work, right? That, that in effect, I left Jackie to be a single parent. Pretty sure that I would leave out that part where I went into a, a deep dive of depression and ended up being hospitalized. In other words, if, if you were reading my autobiography, you, you certainly wouldn't get uh, the truth. It's one of the amazing things about the Bible. The Bible proves its authenticity by its transparency, even when transparency means it's going to reveal and illustrate corruption and evil. The Bible is really honest about all things, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, as Pastor Ben mentioned, we're continuing our series, David, the Imperfect King. And as we look at David's life, we're going to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
As we're just meeting David today, we reflect back on the last few weeks and everything. David is, you know, his life hasn't been easy by any stretch of the imagination, but he's come out on top. He's the hero. He's the conquering king. He's athletic. He's artistic. He is rich. He is well-respected. He is trusted. He is a great man of character. Until he isn't. And that brings us to right here, right now. Second Samuel chapter 11, the very first verse says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. In the springtime, when the kings go out to war, King David did not go out to war. We don't know why he didn't go out to war. We don't know why he stayed at home. But this we know, it wasn't the time for him to stay at home. This was not that time. And on one of those nights when he was at home, when he shouldn't have been at home, he he couldn't sleep. And so he went out and walked on his rooftop and and looked at the stars and the the heavenly bodies. And and keep in mind, he grew up or, you know, was living in Palestine. It's desert. Their roofs aren't sloped. They don't need to shed the rain and things like that. So walking on his roof was a piece of cake. He's out there walking on the roof, looking at the stars and the heavenly bodies. And he's just amazed and stuff. And and then he looks across across the neighborhood and he sees a heavenly body, a beautiful woman. We don't know how long he looked at the beautiful woman from a a distance, but we know it was too long. And, And David showed that it was too long too because he wanted to meet this heavenly body. This beautiful woman. And so he sent some of his staff over to go and find out who this heavenly body was. And they come back with this report. This is Bathsheba, the wife of. Those words should have ended it right there. Okay, Bathsheba, the wife of. He didn't need to hear anything else. It should have been, okay, back up to the stars and the heavenly bodies just being amazed by that. And if that wasn't enough, what came next certainly should have been enough. This is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. For, For you and me, Uriah the Hittite, no big deal, right? But for David, this is a big deal. David knows Uriah. Uriah is a key person in David's military. He's one of the commanders. David's life actually has depended on Uriah. Uriah right now is actually fighting for David. That should have been enough. This is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And and David knew exactly what Uriah was at, where he was at, and exactly what he was doing. And, And that should have been enough. But because David knew where Uriah was at and exactly what he was doing, David convinced himself that he had an opportunity to be with Bathsheba. 
And so Bathsheba is escorted from her home to the king's palace. And the king, David, treats her like an object, abuses her, and rapes her. Before we go on, have you ever made a decision or a choice that puts you at the wrong place at the wrong time? And when you were at the wrong place at the, the wrong time, was sin and temptation, has that ever happened? Sin and temptation is enticing you and, and calling you by name? And it's just so hard. Right? Temptation's hard. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation. And when you're being tempted, remember this truth. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In spite of that truth, that God has provided you a way out, when that temptation comes, when you are in the wrong place at the right, wrong time, God provided a way. But you and I have been like David, haven't we? We went ahead and did the wrong thing. We ignored the way out and we did whatever we did. As we go back to David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba is bewildered. She's confused. She's shocked. She's humiliated. She's ashamed due to no fault of her own. And carrying all that weight, she walks back home and probably takes another bath. A few weeks later, she sends a message to the king, I'm pregnant. David's knee-jerk reaction to that message, the first thing he thought of, cannot be shared with you. It is not appropriate for any audience. And if you thought what David had done to this point was ugly, and I hope you do. He's about to multiply ugly times ugly as he tries to cover up his sin. David tries to cover up his uncovering of Bathsheba by coming up with a plan 
to make this all go away. Plan A, David comes up with it. It's a soft, this should work. This is a piece of cake. Plan A is this, I know what I'll do. Plan a. Uriah, you come back from the battle. Uriah, you'll go home, you'll spend time with your wife. Eight months or so later, you'll have a baby. It'll be a little bit early, but that happens sometimes and everything will be fine. So Uriah is called for to come back to battle from battle. He, he reports to the king and, and he and King David are talking with one another, but King David is having such a hard time concentrating with this conversation because you see, he has ulterior motives. And so while they're talking and conversing, David is thinking about something else and it's just not clicking, right? Because he's got a plan. And finally, David sends Uriah home. Only Uriah didn't go home. And later we'll find out from Uriah why he didn't. He said, how could I? How could I? The, the Ark of the Covenant, the place that Pastor Ben talked about, represented the presence of God. We talked about that last week. Uriah says, that's out in battle. It's that danger of being taken. There's all these men, my friends, my fellow soldiers, they're, they're sleeping in the desert on rocks and the sand and their lives are at risk. How could I go home and enjoy home life? David is perplexed. Really? And now he's got to come up with plan B. And plan B is not a whole lot different than plan A. It, it's going to work. Plan B is this. You know, I'm going to welcome Uriah back to the palace. He's such a great guy. I will throw a dinner party for him. I'll bring in his favorite IPAs, his favorite single-barreled whiskey, and I'll get him smashed. And then I'll send him home. And he'll be with his wife then. And, and so that's kind of what happens. Sure enough, Uriah is trashed. And David sends him home, but Uriah doesn't go home because you see Uriah the Hittite, the, the foreigner, even drunk, has more character than David, the king of God's people. And now David has to come up with plan C. And plan C for Uriah means three strikes and you're out. David writes a note to Joab. In the note, he, he writes, I want you to put Uriah in the front lines of the battle. And when the fighting gets its fiercest, I want you to pull everybody back from Uriah so that he's pretty much left all alone and he'll be struck down and killed. Uriah, or, you know, David writes that note, seals it up, gives it to Uriah to take back to battle, to take to the general Joab. Uriah is going back to battle with his death sentence in his hand. He has no idea. There's nothing, he's done nothing wrong. And he hands his death sentence over to Joab, the general. 
And Joab looks at it and he, and he sees the king's orders. He doesn't know why the king has ordered this, but it's the king's orders. And so he does it. He puts Uriah in the front lines. The fighting's getting fierce. And he pulls the other soldiers out. And Uriah and a few others actually end up dying in the battle. Have you ever tried to cover up your sin? Plan A, plan B, plan C. Maybe you tried to rationalize it. Nobody will know. Nobody will get hurt. It's not that bad. Try to justify, well, they deserved it. Ever try to cover up one of your sins by blaming someone else? One of my, my favorite stories of that is when Jackie's daughter was with uh, a crayon in her hand and she's writing on the wall and Jackie goes, Alyssa, did you write on the wall? Crayons in her hand. No. Who did it? Andrew, her brother, right? Crayons still in her hand. Andrew's not at home. Mindy did it. The dog. Okay. As ridiculous as that is, that's exactly what it's like when you and I try to blame someone else for what we did. It's ridiculous. You had to try to cover up your sin by telling your parents or your spouse only part of the truth. Ever try to cover it up by just pretending to be, you know, oblivious to, to what anyone's talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Ever try to cover up your sin maybe by deleting a, a search engine history or some text messages? Or maybe on the expense report, you put it under miscellaneous. What David's about to find out and, and what you're about to find out, if you don't already know, is that you're free to choose whatever you want to do, but you're not free to choose your consequences. Satan wants to tell you and me that, that we'll never get found out, that our, our sin will never find us out. And some of us know how wrong that is. We've been found out and it caused a lot of hurt. And for some, Satan's pounding on you with that lie right now. Know it for what it is. It's a lie. So David has raped Bathsheba. He has murdered Uriah. And this is what the scriptures say. The thing David had done 
displeased the Lord. So God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan tells David this clever yet horrific story. Nathan says to David, David, there's this really rich guy. I mean, he is super rich, filthy rich. He's got flocks and herds, all kinds of of cattle and sheep and all that stuff. And, And back in that culture, that was super huge wealth. Okay, so there's this rich guy. He's got all these flocks and these herds and everything. He's super wealthy. He has a friend come and visit him. And the rich man is so excited to see his friend. He's got, man, I'm gonna throw a banquet. Right? And instead of the rich man going out to all of his flocks and herds and just grabbing one of those out of the many, many thousands that he has, butchering one of those animals, putting on the Traeger to smoke, the rich man goes to his poor neighbor's house who only has one little lamb. And that poor neighbor loves that little lamb. He takes care of it like it's a child. He hugs it and holds it, treats it like family. And the the rich man took that lamb, butchered it, and smoked it. And David is just listening to this. He's just going nuts on the inside. It says this, David burned with anger against the man, that rich man, and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And Nathan's like, I thought that's what you were going to say. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now those consequences that you can't choose. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And David is found out. He's exposed. The abuse, the contempt, the deceit, the evil, the filth, the hypocrisy, the murder, the rape, it's all out. Shockingly, what else is out there? Relief. You see, David had been running with the devil. And he was worn out. 
As David reflected on this part of his life, he wrote any number of Psalms. One of those is Psalm 32. And this is what he says about that time in his life when he was covering up his sin. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Do you have any uneasiness in your life? Do you ever stop to think that maybe that's because of sin you're trying to cover, to rationalize, to plan and and contemplate about how you can take care of it. Don't you know the, the, the regret, the, the guilt, the shame will wear you out just like it did David. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And now another consequence. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David knew that he deserved to die. He knew that the wages of sin is death. You know who else knows that the wages of sin is death? Our culture. Our culture preaches toleration and acceptance. And yet we're so violent and angry with one another. Our culture teaches toleration and acceptance. And and then when someone has a a different attitude or a different behavior or they said some things they shouldn't say, then that's it for them. They're canceled out. They are dead to society. They are no good. They're shelved. They lose their career. They lose their debt. David owned his sin. He no longer rationalized it. He didn't blame anyone else. He didn't excuse it. He didn't defend it. He just came clean. This wasn't David going, uh, you know, lip service. I'm sorry. You know, like, we have our kids do when they're younger and they get in a fight with their sibling and we tell them, now you go back and you tell them you're sorry. Say you're sorry. That's not what David was doing. He was truly sorry. He didn't say, I'm sorry and then act like everything was okay. He's sorry. 
He was willing to accept whatever consequences came his way for his actions. And so David simply, yet powerfully, simply yet honestly said, I've sinned against the Lord. His confession, his repentance is agreeing with God. A God, what you say about sin is right. Confession and repentance, agreeing with God, whatever he says is right. In Psalm 51, another one of those Psalms where David is talking about this time in his life, he, he talks about, um, you know, again, going to God. And it's kind of interesting. He doesn't ask for forgiveness for adultery or murder. He actually goes deeper than that. He gets to the heart of the matter. And he says, he prays to God, he says, create in me a pure heart, oh God. David knew where the root of all the evil was, his heart. What heart sins do you need to repent of? Let's look at Psalm 139. You'll see those words. Let's read it relatively slowly together so we can pay attention to the words, okay? Let's read it. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, God, and know my heart. When you admit that God is right about your sin, you receive the forgiveness that he's had there all along. And you're willing to accept whatever consequences there may come. You don't excuse or defend yourself. So for example, if, if you're speeding, you may very well have to pay the speeding ticket. If you steal from work, you may very well have to find another job. If you commit adultery, you may very well lose your marriage. But you're forgiven. David failed miserably. He was a king who left his people alone. He sent the soldiers out to war and stayed at home. He raped Bathsheba. He came up with plan A, B, and C that, that ended in Uriah's death. He failed miserably. But his failure wasn't final. 
Maybe you remember Adam and Eve when they sinned, they, they tried to cover it up and God came onto the scene with a promise. David confesses his sin here and, and God comes to David through Nathan with a promise. And like Adam and Eve and like David, you and I have failed miserably. And God knows all about it. And God doesn't come to us with a promise. He comes to us with the fulfillment of the promise. God sends us Jesus. And through the blood, and only through the blood of Jesus, through his innocent life, his perfect life, innocent death, and powerful resurrection, the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered completely. See, there's no charge against you. Jesus was charged in your place. Jesus was found guilty in your place. Jesus lost his face. He lost his reputation. He was numbered with the sinners. He lost his reputation so that you and I could have the reputation of being forgiven and dearly loved children of God. We failed miserably. But our sin isn't final. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Our sins may be great, but God is greater. No reason to hide. No reason to cover up. No reason to compare. God is with you with his grace and his mercy. And that's final. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for coming onto the scene and, and into our hearts. Thank you for letting us see that you see everything. Now help us to see everything too. That because of Jesus, we're covered and we're forgiven and dearly loved children of God. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast, brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.